Ladies and gentlemen, during this intermission, the ABC sales staff will visit every part of the theatre. You will be able to purchase delicious lion's made Cornish dairy ice cream, as well as Kiora fruit drinks, including two exciting new flavours, flamenco orange and cascade lemon lime. The kiosk is also open in the foyer, offering refreshing ice-cold Pepsi-Cola and your favourite brands of cigarettes and confectionery. Good morning. Eight, seven, this is roll 29, 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. But you know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that we're like, we're striking. That's what it is, it's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really, is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got, like, my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 16 I've got to make a correction with regards to episode 15. I'll discuss it more in the commentary, but I've included a feature on the AKG mics that the Beatles used for vocals in the Let It Be film. Unfortunately, I was a bit ahead of myself with this. This will all unfold later on in this episode when we discuss, spoiler alert, George getting an electric shock from his mic. This is going to happen from time to time, I'm afraid, as we're exploring these tapes together and I hope we're all learning something new as we do. While we're on the subject of mistakes, another great podcast I can recommend, Screw It, We're Just Gonna Talk About The Beatles, is very open and upfront about their occasional lapses in knowledge. It's a podcast run by fans, not academics, and as such, it really conveys the emotional connection that fans have with the band. It's quirky, fun, and often hilarious, and one of the few other Beatles podcasts that let me promote my stuff on their page. Go check it out. We're now in the late afternoon of January 3rd, 1969. We're gradually coming to the end of Season 2, but there's a little way to go just yet. Each day will be a different season, so you'll be able to binge them in big chunks eventually. Here is a recap of episode 15. The tape starts with Paul leading the band through a rehearsal of two of us. The band have remembered most of it, but need to be reminded by Paul about some of the more tricky parts. Yesterday's idea about a faster mid-late section is abandoned at this point. George jokes, leave that for the big band arrangement. We then get a switch of feed with the same conversation only now much clearer. The consensus in the band is that they need to rehearse until they get every detail correct. Paul is now focusing on the section coming out of the middle eight and he and George vocalise parts for the guitar. John thinks his guitar part is inspired by the Loving Spoonful and settles on a chugging rhythm pattern. 
We now begin to see that elements of this arrangement will be transplanted into the song Get Back later in the sessions. Paul complains that singing the lower part of the harmony is too difficult. They seem to have forgotten that they resolved this yesterday by switching John's part for Paul's. John's chugging guitar becomes the obvious choice for an intro to the song. Ringo picks up the beat and the band all come in. Paul likes this idea. Now at Paul's suggestion, he and John switch vocal lines, though John is unsure if he'll be able to sing it and play that rhythm part. The next run through is a dramatic improvement with only a small issue of John occasionally drifting into Paul's register and singing some parts in unison. John hears a third high harmony for George, which is not surprising as that's what they rehearsed yesterday. Paul has two suggestions for how George can sing it and as they rehearse this, Ringo accompanies them with the galloping snare beat that will eventually form the rhythm of Get Back. Lunchtime approaches and as a result rehearsals of two of us conclude, but with some decent progress made. There now follows a slightly comic discussion where George seems to have the wrong end of the stick about the window washer that Mal has arranged for Paul and his cars. Someone talking to Michael Lindsay Hogg gives the time as 2pm. When the tape starts back up, Paul and Michael are talking with Glyn Johns. Paul discusses the relative merits of smell-o-vision with Michael and this soon evolves into a conversation about uncontrollable giggles. Paul relates an anecdote about him and his brother at the dinner table while Michael discusses corpsing while doing Shakespeare during his acting career. Another tape cut and the Beatles return to rehearsal, but seemingly without a clear direction of what to do next. George and John improvise something around the riff that will later become Sun King while they wait for Paul. John and George have an active discussion about the proposed live show, perhaps following on from a conversation at lunch. John's ideas are more conceptual, suggesting performing for one person or one family. George starts leading the band into a quite pleasing rendition of Larry Williams' Short Fat Fanny. After an interruption by Mal, Paul asks the band what they like to rehearse, but instead of answering, John leads them into a performance of the Midnight Special. A couple of musical references to drinking songs by John and George seem to suggest that there has been some alcohol consumed at lunchtime, which is not helping the Beatles' work ethic. Slurring their words for comic effect, they stagger through a drunken rendition of the song What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For? George tells a story about Albert and B.B. King, who aren't related, but Albert seems to infer that they are, and says he'd love to go and see them. Finally, George offers to teach them all one of his slow ones. Paul directs them to the schedules Mal has prepared, and they discuss the songs listed there. John asks Mal to find his lyrics to another work in progress, Give Me Some Truth, presumably to add it to the schedule. We then learn that Paul has contributed to this song, though in the released version in 1971, he doesn't receive a credit. George asks Mal what other guitars they have with them, and then asks if John would like to play organ on this one. And so George begins to teach the rest of the Beatles, All Things Must Pass, and this is where we rejoin them. Tape starts midway through a run-through of All Things Must Pass. George playing the song and the others trying to follow. As John looks for the chords, it's clear he doesn't have anything written down, but he's competent enough to try and transpose George's chords onto the organ, more or less. Paul begins to think of a harmony for the chorus. 
George suggests to John that it might be quicker to learn the chords on the guitar first. He then can't help but comment on the colour of the backdrop, yeah. which we'll just have to imagine. What does it do all the time? It's just always going... <laughs> Someone would turn the ringer off on that phone when they're filming. I think John is having difficulty hearing all the notes clearly in the echoey room. Although not as technical a keyboard player as, say, Nicky Hopkins or Billy Preston, John is more than able to understand the chords he is playing. As distracting as he is, Paul is identifying a pedal tone, a kind of drone note that runs through the chord changes. This will help him form his bass part. Val, what uh, guitars have you got? No, it's not mine. Maybe I'll just play the photos from this day of George playing an Epiphone casino while John is playing the organ can now be explained. What appears to be the problem is that Lucy, the Les Paul, isn't suitable for this strummed backing that George wants. So he eventually switches to John's. Earlier I assumed this guitar would be George's Epiphone, but it looks like that was incorrect. harmony ideas, a lot of them quite wildly out. You see, really, I should play this on acoustic guitar. 
All things must pass. So how, uh, how are yes. we going to do that on the famous TV show? After showing John the chords for the chorus, hook of the song, George contemplates switching to acoustic guitar for a better sound. This will present technical problems for a 1969 live show. If George wants to play it on acoustic guitar, how does he do that? Paul asks Peter Sutton about the live sound rather than Glyn Johns. Now. Yeah, but it's like, you know, if you play acoustic you put, guitar... Yeah, we can get it on the PA. But if you play acoustic guitar, yeah, can you put it on the PA? amplified with a big bassy defade. Interesting use of the term defade by George to refer to an amplifier. Interesting, of course, for those who know the opening lines to the Let It Be album. You know, it didn't happen. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, it's okay if you sing quiet, but just uh, acoustic. See, the thing is, really, you want it acoustic for the recording, you want, but you want to be able to hear it on the PA, yeah. good and loud, like an electric. In the background, you can hear John saying, Mick tried it. It appears to be a reference to the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which John and Yoko had appeared on recently. The song they played on acoustic guitars was No Expectations. It sounds like they only got a decent recording sound and not a good live sound from this. Can you do that? No, not using that. You mean to put down the guitar? Yeah. Try it. Okay. Because if you have acoustic and it's just your voice is loud, electric and no backing, Peter suggests using a specific mic for this. Right at the last minute, I've just realised what John is singing. He's singing Take a Load Off Harry, Mocking the Weight by the band. Oh, give us a knee on time by playing Lulu's I'm a Tiger. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
As they set up the microphone, we'll experience the phenomenon of howl around. The acoustic chamber of the guitar is reflecting the sound back and generating feedback. tape cut. Electrical problems are about to become a more serious issue. where it goes it's not always been that great then it goes to be minor all things must pass all things be minor must a start that uh, but it's not always been that great now all things must pass things must pass This is where Paul excels at teaching the songs to the band. Oh, so the chords real, really are. 
Paul's first go at a bass line is all about that pedal tone. As ever, just as everyone's started to get the hang of the song, the songwriter throws in a new section. sequence, part of which is used in the Let It Be film. George tries to adjust two mics rigged up to capture his vocal and guitar and receives an electric shock. Ah, fuck it. Shocks are shocks. Oh, gentlemen, I want to call your attention to this boy, yeah? He just got shot. Just got a belt, man. Now, we boys in the MU... I'd really, I got an electric shock. going to be in trouble at this. If this boy dies, you're going to cop it. Paul playing shop steward. George saying, if I die, you'll all cop it. Emphasising his value to the band. <laughs> Glyn Johns and Michael Lindsay Hogg now involved. Yeah, just then, when I put it, well, probably it's the two mics together, you know. We need a bit of insulation between the two. No, it's not the two much together because I'm using. Well, I'm not plugged in anywhere, I'm not plugged in anywhere, so it can't be through the electric guitar or amp. It's got, it's only the mic. Peter is saying it can't be his mic, but George points out his guitar isn't plugged into anything. And I'm not even touching the ground. And I've got rubber shoes as well. And you're made of wood. Uh, you see the drag is... It's that water you're standing in. It's that one, you know, that one about where you go in the studio and it's all up. It's like... I don't think it's a... I mean, like this, it should be a little room. Yes. Like, you know, it should be where you're here. You know, all this. George is now complaining about the rehearsal space. Not surprisingly. When was it, George, when you touched it? I got gripped hold of two of them together. Both of them, just grab both of them hard. George asking Peter to grip the mics. On the end. I'm in there, George. Not in there. Now sing with this tune right. into them. <laughs> <laughs> and sign here. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Mal is with Dennis for a minute, maybe. Hold that one as well at the same time and see what happens. Mal is with Dennis O'Dell, it appears. Let me see it again. Let's try. It might be that thing. There's always something to be playing a guitar as well. Yeah, but it's not plugged in. George tries gripping the mics again. Ah! That's it. That's it. If you put your hand on that bit, across that bit. And you get feedback. It's the feedback, yeah. The feedback going into the... Uh... Just grip it tight and put your palm of your hand on that bit. Put your chakra on it. George makes a reference. Put your chakra on it. The seven chakras, a concept that appears in Buddhist, Hindu and yogic traditions, exist along the spine, but can be accessed at key points in the hand. This is used for healing purposes, but not for testing electrical circuits.
A little murmur of aha as Peter gets a shock and the tape cuts. Why is George getting electric shocks from his microphone? As I said earlier in the monologue, I made an error in the last episode about the type of microphone being used at this point. They will be using the AKG condenser microphones later in the sessions, and for all the reasons discussed, just not right now. Instead, the footage of George getting shocked in the Let It Be film shows a rather jerry-rigged setup of two microphones taped together on a mic stand. This kind of arrangement is seen in concert footage of bands in the late 1960s. One reason for this was as a primitive form of phase cancelling and feedback reduction. Bands like the Grateful Dead pioneered this method using two omnidirectional mics a few inches apart so that they received the sound source at slightly different times creating a few microseconds of delay. It's pretty ingenious and allow bands to play at higher volumes, but I don't believe that's what we're witnessing here. For one thing, the two microphones aren't identical or even similar. And for another, the howling feedback demonstrates that these mics are having no effect on feedback reduction. It's most likely that the two mics are going to two different sources, one to the Fender PA and the other to the mixing console for the sound recording. And it's probably these two sources of power that are causing the issue. As George points out, he's not playing a guitar that's plugged in. He's insulated from the earth by rubber shoes. So it's not a bad earth or ground problem on the PA. What I think is happening is that the PA system and the recording setup are plugged into two different power circuits in the studio. And there is therefore a difference in the earth or ground potentials of the two mics. Stray voltage wants to travel from the high potential source to the low potential. By grabbing both mics repeatedly, it should be said, George is making himself a conductor for that stray voltage. Although everyone is joking around on set, electrical shocks from musical equipment are very serious and can be fatal. It beggars belief that this issue isn't being dealt with by an electrician, if there was one at the studio. Instead, it's left to the lead guitarist of the biggest band in the world and the chief sound recordist of a professionally filmed documentary to repeatedly try to recreate the circumstances that led to a painful electric shock. Front slate, 48, take one. The time is now 5 to 4. It's 3.55pm. Paul quoting the Everly Brothers tune Problems while reviewing Mal's schedule. George has returned to electric guitar. I imagine feeling it's safer. Must be left handed. Is it? Well, that's that. There it is. George, still not happy with Lucy, asks Mal again what electric guitars there are. Mal says there's an Epiphone. George presumes that that must be Paul's. Mal says no, it's strung right handed. Paul says that's John's, but George points out where John's guitar is on the soundstage. Mel tells George it's his. 
unsatisfied with this, George asks. And what else? Mal says, nothing of yours and what sounds like only a uh, Lucy. The options George could have had to hand include his psychedelic Stratocaster Rocky, his Gibson SG guitar, the fretless Black Widow guitar, any of his Beatlemania era Gresh and Rickenbacker guitars, and presumably the Rosewood Telecaster guitar that must have been part of his collection by now. These, you know, you need solid strings, you know, that are in tune, because these are, these light gauge are out, you know, they're only good for trying it. No, it's not worth it. Mal offers to go to George's house to pick up another guitar, but George thinks it's too late for that. So, do you, you want to uh, learn it really on that? Because I'll play John's though, uh... George instead uses John's guitar. This is the casino seen in the photos and outtake footage, and not George's, as I have presumed. Although we now know George's is available. George complains that his light gauge guitar strings keep going out of tune. John offers, maybe your guitar is still out, meaning the adjustments that George made yesterday haven't worked. George says, I got mine done. It really does a lot when you scrape them. John says something about sand down. So that I think they're talking about the two Epiphone guitars having their finish removed. George starts all things must pass, but pauses to tune while Paul improvises his own words. George in the footage is stood in front of John at the organ. Yoko is behind John. Occasionally she puts her arms on his shoulders or plays with his hair. Sunrise doesn't last. John has the chords down now. 
Paul is distracted, playing with his amp, creating distortion and feedback. George asks John for his thoughts on anything he doesn't get. George starts to run through with John and Ringo. Glyn approaches Paul. 
IBC, a studio Glyn is associated with, can't let him hire an eight-track recorder for the live show. Much of the conversation is obscured by the music until the sound guys switch the feed, or most likely move a boom mic over to Paul and Glyn. Glyn saying something about a terrible lash-up, something cobbled together. Lynn suggests getting equipment from the USA, perhaps using Wally Hyder, who's pioneering mobile recording truck, will record the Woodstock Festival later this year. In the midst of swearing, Glyn spits in Paul's eye. He laughs it off by saying, well, you haven't washed. Embarrassing as he's only known Paul for two days. Glyn mentions Wally Hyder's truck recorded the Cream live album. to find out if it's available in this country. Paul says call America and get it here for next week. Glyn is sceptical about the quality of American mixing discs. Mal offers to make some phone calls. Why yeah. AMI couldn't do it? No, well, they've only got four-track gears. No, they haven't. Paul asks, why not use EMI equipment? Glyn says it's only four-track. The industry standard is now eight-track. Four-track mobile. No, they haven't. They took a fucking eight-track out to the Beach Boys. Paul disagrees quite vehemently, citing EMI's recent use of an eight-track setup to record the Beach Boys in concert. I will pause here to drop in a podcast recommendation that I've made before. Ceylon is the definitive ongoing musical history of the Beach Boys. If you want to follow the story of America's greatest rivals to the Beatles and the band that inspired them most in the psychedelic era, then this is the ideal place. The Beach Boys released an album in 1970 to cash in on their continuing popularity in Europe and particularly the UK, in sharp contrast to their declining fortunes in their home country. They called it The Beach Boys Live in London. The live performance itself was captured by EMI at the Odeon Astoria in London on December the 8th, 1968. 
It appears from these conversations that Paul became aware of the recording while trying to book a session, presumably for Mary Hopkin, on the same day. As Paul explains, he was told that the 8-track recorder wasn't available as it was being used for the Beach Boys. This bit of dialogue actually appears, albeit in a very boldlerized form, in the book that accompanied the Let It Be album on its initial release. It's easy to understand Paul's consternation at being told EMI won't lend the Beatles their recorder, when he knows they've already lent it out to a rival band. However, with no concert date or venue yet discussed, it's probably a bit unreasonable to expect EMI to do without their most sophisticated recording machine for an extended period, no matter who might want it. The album The Beach Boys Live in London was not released in the US until late 1976 under the rather confusing title of Beach Boys 69. It enjoyed modest chart success but it is an interesting document of a band trying to find its feet again after some serious setbacks, not least of which was the mental decline of their songwriter, producer, leader Brian Wilson. Note Mal trying to move Glyn away from Paul, who seems a little cross. They really didn't, because I had to use the studio, and they said, we're moving the 8-track tonight, and that was one of the excuses they used. Really. Get with it, Mal. Get with it, Mal. Paul dismisses Glyn and Mal. to get uh, eight track stuff to record all this you want to get like the greatest equipment where would we get it Paul asks the rest of the band where he can get hold of some eight track equipment because apparently well, we, it hasn't we'll been lend it to ourselves but EMI should do it you know it's like if we want to make a you know if uh, Benjamin Britten wants to do an album Right. Paris, EMI, I've got to fucking get all that shit over to him. And they do, of course. If we subsidise EMI, then get it out of there. Right. Because they just told George is of the same opinion. EMI should do it. The Beatles subsidise EMI so far as he's concerned. So Paul is really more cross with EMI for fobbing Glyn off than he is with Glyn. Continuation of 48, take one. And the time is now 4.15. the end of this week, the best console we can possibly have here. Now really, before the end of this week, and why not? What's the hang-up? It's 4.15, Paul presents an ultimatum, the best equipment before the end of the week. Note today is Friday. You know, what's the trouble? Is it expense? Is it what? You know, Japan and America, they're both very together and they'll get it here. You know, 
Germany. Germany's very together. Neumann. Look, Neumann. Look if, we Neumann, get it, if we don't get it, we'll use all eight tracks. Yeah, we can use your eight track with IBCs. So the first time George mentions that the Beatles, or perhaps Apple, have bought an 8-track machine, Glyn suggests using IBC's console with the Beatles machine, which is close to the solution they eventually arrive at. It's quite well documented that EMI Studios were a little slow in adopting new developments in sound recording, preferring their own tried and tested methods. 8-track recording, that is the ability to make 8 separate recordings on the same stretch of tape, was not a new idea by 1969. Guitarist and recording pioneer Les Paul had an Ampex 8-track recorder installed in his home studio in 1957. Record labels like Atlantic and Motown were using 8-track by the early 1960s. The Beach Boys' classic 1966 Pet Sounds album featured a backing track dubbed down to two tracks of an 8-track recorder, leaving six tracks to fill with the complex vocal arrangements. 1966 was also the year that 3M introduced the 1-inch 8-track M23 recorder, the first mass-produced machine in this format. The first M23 machines were in fact sold to Wally Hyder for his mobile studio, the same Wally Hyder that Glyn is name dropping today. EMI Studios did indeed have their own 3M M23 and after a fight did finally allow the Beatles to use it. However, the technicians at EMI were far from happy with the machine's performance and were reluctant to release it to the studio. In Lewison's Complete Beatles Recording Sessions, he quotes Mike Sheedy, who was tape-op and second engineer on the White Album. The 8-track was taken from Francis Thompson's office before it was ready for use. The Beatles had been forced to use Trident Studios to record their single Hey Jude, and now wouldn't accept more primitive 4-track recordings on EMI's trusty Studer J37 machines. Among the list of issues EMI had with the 3M M23 was its unsuitability to the use of very speed, which the Beatles had taken advantage of in the last two years. But more fundamentally, the 3M machine only played back on the sync head and not the superior repro head during overdubbing, which simply did not meet EMI standards. Ringo had his own theory. They bought the 8-track, but they were too cheap to buy the plug to plug it in. The first Beatles recording at EMI on an 8-track recorder was George's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Some commentators have suggested that George himself supplied the 8-track for the Let It Be project, but from his comments here he is indicating that it's our 8-track, either belonging to the Beatles or Apple. Jerry Hammock, in his Beatles recording reference manuals, identifies the Beatles machine as another 3M M23. It's not unreasonable to deduce that this machine was purchased for the still-being-built Apple Studio in the basement of 3 Savile Row. That studio's designer, the infamous Magic Alex, head of Apple Electronics, and conspicuous by his lack of involvement in this project, was caught on film in early 1968 surrounded by equipment, amongst them a Studer J37 4-track recorder, just like EMI's. It stands to reason that when EMI upgraded their equipment, so did Apple. In the end, Glyn and Mal avoided confronting EMI as George suggested, and merely have the Beatles' own machine delivered to Twickenham. There's footage of them unloading what is definitely a 3M M23 from the Apple van through the stage door. 
If this was to be used in the Apple Studio, then it's easy to understand the Beatles' reluctance to take it and stall that project. It's not known if any recordings were made on the 8-track at Twickenham. Presumably, it was to be used for the concert, and its arrival on the 6th is a little premature, but probably caused by the telling off that Glenn and Mal have just received. At all events, the 3M 8-track was used for the Let It Be album, and in its home at Apple Studios. See, we should just have a mixer and everything, and, you know, look, there's amateurism going on, you know, let's just get it together. Paul very much in charge now and giving Glyn a difficult time. He's hired him to do a job and he expects it to be done. He doesn't want to be involved in the discussions about how they do it. In this respect he's right, but it's a symptom of the lack of direction for the project that Glyn is only just understanding what he's supposed to be doing and when. And it says in this year's Beetle, you know, whatever, Beetle thing. And so the only reason they can really buy ABC is because of all that shit. So, you know, if it was America, you know, they'd be there with 48 eight tracks. And That's all. right, Joel. And it's a live album. That's right. They're the company, they get to pay, right, they got to supply it. George, showing his understanding of the Beatles' value to EMI, talks about an article he's read about EMI's proposed purchase of the ABC cinema chain and how since 1962 their stock has risen. George points out that this is largely due to the Beatles. Paul now trying to lightheartedly egg both John and George on as George effectively tells Glyn to not take no for an answer. John rightly points out that this will be the first live album. With Glyn and Mal sent off with a flea in their ear, rehearsals resume when all things must pass, and we'll leave it for now. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.